Hard to beat Mission Week. Hard to beat Mission Week. I apologize that you guys saw that a week late, but we wanted to make sure you got to see it. So projector, for those of you who weren't here last week, projector was down. Projector is back. Praise God. Projector works. So we got a recap of Mission Week there, and man, that was good. Um, I'm just thankful and privileged to get to be part of it. So uh, if I haven't met you, I'm Shay Ryanga. I'm blessed to be one of the pastors here. And uh, we, this is the last Sunday of a standalone kind of message. So I've been dabbling in the lectionary. For those of you that don't know what the lectionary is, it's just a reading guide that churches use that have a text from the Old Testament, a text from the Psalms, a text from the Gospel, a text from one of Paul's epistles, letters. And I've just been picking. I've been picking one um, each week. And next week, we're going to start a new sermon series on the book of Jonah. So we're going to be back on our sermon series cycle matched up with this, what's going on in the sanctuary. And Amanda Hardeman's going to be with you for three weeks, and I'll be in the sanctuary services for the next three weeks. And then Pastor David is back, and we're, we're back to normal. So when Pastor David comes back, I'm excited to start a new year with y'all, because last year, I started with you in December um, doing this every week. So I'm excited for a new school year and praying expectant prayers, and I invite you to do the same, because I'm excited to, to see us grow and to live into the calling that God has for us. So this is the last week of our standalone, and of all the passages this week, there were some really pretty, beautiful passages to pick from this week. I didn't pick those. I didn't pick those because it's like the last standalone week. So don't know when I'm going to have an opportunity like this. And so it was staring me in the face this week. And I just kept, I just kept coming back to it. I was like, the Lord just wouldn't let it go. Kept coming back to it. We're going to be in the book of Hosea today. The book of Hosea is where we're going to get to. We're going to get to Hosea chapter 1 verses 2 through 10 in a second. Um, when, when I was little growing up, I was one of those early risers, still am, early to bed, early to rise. My parents never had to wake me up for school. I had the alarm clock set real early, had to watch my sports center. I had a whole routine. Since I can remember, I just had this routine. I was pretty self-sufficient. My brother, on the other hand, did not love getting up for school. And sometimes it would take some unconventional methods to get him awake and going. And so one of the, one of the methods that my dad used was cold water in the shower. <laughs> and to this, I mean, not to this day, but I mean, that, he, they, they never let go of that. So it became a game of just messing with each other in the morning to wake up in the morning. Just surprise, you never knew when you were going to get cold water. And... Uh, Sometimes in our lives, as I know all, all of us that have been kids or have kids currently, especially if they're little, you got to sometimes act a fool and do some unconventional things to get your kids to pay attention, to get them to wake up, to get them to focus on what you need them to focus on. And sometimes these methods are, are about a little more serious matters if we've ever been part of an intervention. And there's family, friends, people in our lives struggling with drug abuse or relational problems. And it's, it's got to stop. Like, I can't love you and let you live this way. And so you get the whole family together. You get a whole crew together. And, and this has to stop. Sometimes there's extraordinary means that are needed for us to wake up, for us to pay attention. And the prophets, God uses the prophets in this way to speak to Israel and in this time of the prophetic tradition where we have all these prophets, there are a time when faith is fleeting and, and so few people of God's chosen people, God's chosen nation remember 
what God has done for them. And so there's, there's some extraordinary things that happen. Like Ezekiel lays on his side for an extraordinary number of days to symbolically represent this judgment against the city of Jerusalem. So, so he lays on his side and then he changes positions and lays on his other side. And the prophet Isaiah takes off sackcloth and sandals at one point, which is supposed to represent the removal of the Egyptians by the king of Assyria. And Jeremiah goes into a potter's house and sees how the potter's molding clay to represent the way in which God wants to mold Israel. We don't really have this kind of prophetic tradition anymore because the dispensation of time is over. We're told, like, John the Baptist, as far as this kind of a prophet, was really the last one. There's people in our churches that have a a, a prophetic gift, perhaps, but this sort of dispensation of time is gone. So even when we see public demonstrations that are meant to be symbolic, that are meant to to be a sign of some kind. They don't quite match up to the reality and relationship that we have with God, the way in which these prophets were called to do certain things, to communicate how far they had fallen, or or if if things don't get better, then the future isn't, isn't gonna be a good future. And so we're gonna see some of that in the book of Hosea, chapter one, verses two to eight. And I wanna warn you a little bit, some of the language, some of the pronouns, some of the images might just strike you as being a little uncomfortable, a little off. And, and, and I want you to just sit in that a little bit because God's word doesn't always make us feel good. <laughs> it's not supposed to. God's word isn't always politically correct and, it, and it's not supposed to be politically correct. Because sort of how we come up with what's politically correct is, is kind of being tied to certain views of the world and the- socioeconomic theories and whatnot and, and that are all very subjective. And there's just an objective truth to God's word that transcends our polit- particular historical situations and circumstances sometimes. That in all times and in every place, even when the words are really, really difficult, God has something to say to us here and now. So with that being said, what Hosea is trying to do here, he's trying to get Israel to remember this word here that's later on. We're not going to read this chunk of the passage, but this is the word that's been forgotten that Hosea is trying to help people remember. But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. That's the word. Like, this is the word he's trying to have Israel, help Israel remember as we get in now to our passage for this morning. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 to 10. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Is that you, God? Did you, what? Are you sure? I wonder as Hosea hears this, like just the double take, like did I, wait, was, is that what you really said? Did I, am I, what? Um, I mean, you can imagine, like I, I, want, I want you to go marry someone. I'm telling you they're not gonna be faithful to you. And I want you to marry them anyway. And 
the shockingness of this, like this shocking living public demonstration that God is asking of Hosea, who's obedient to do this this thing that's obviously so difficult to understand and so difficult to implement. And we have a hard enough time living into, you know, the good word we know God has called us to do, like forgiving our, our brothers and sisters and giving to the poor and, and praying, praying for folks, especially our enemies. We have a hard enough time doing the good word that we know we're supposed to do because it's hard, it's, it's tough, let alone like something like this. And thankfully, this isn't a universal general address to the people of God. Like this isn't something we're supposed to put into practice. This is a particular call and command that God has given Hosea as a sign of Israel's relationship with God at this point in time. And all of this happens at the beginning of the prophetic relationship when the Lord began to speak through Hosea. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea. Uh, You know, when we begin things, there's like a training period there's that time if you're thinking about taking a new job where you got to discern if you're supposed to take the new job. And then, then there's usually a, a good window of time where you're learning the ropes, you're being equipped. There's some seminars you probably have to go to. There's a, there's a manual of some kind. There's a transition period. You're usually, you got, you've spent some time, you've put in some time before you get like the hardest circumstance and hardest situation in your job or, or whatever. Like he's, when God began to speak through Hosea, the training wheels were off. I mean, he just thrown immediately into deep water and it sink or swim. When God began to speak through Hosea, this is what God says. And God knows some people like Hosea are ready right away. And they're ready right away, not because they've been equipped, not because they've had years and years and years of experience and training, but they're willing to go. They're ready. You know, God knows that experience in life, in this world, God knows experience in this world can teach us more about boundaries sometimes than breaking down walls. Sometimes the the more and more we live in life, God knows the experience of life that we have can teach us more about our limitations than our unlimited potential. I think sometimes God knows, God knows that our experience in life, the more and more we live in this life, it, it teaches us more about what we can't do than what we can do through him who gives me strength. You know, at the beginning... A lot of times we're clear about our call. We're clear sometimes about what God has called us to do. We have a faith that moves mountains and we pray big prayers. Do we let that pass us by? And then we experience life. And it gets harder to remember that first word. It gets harder and harder as we live through life. We experience things. We get beaten down. We get overwhelmed in drama. And it's tough to even remember that turn, that change. It's tough to remember that time as we live through life. And, and for some of us, I think we even start to doubt whether we even had, had a moment of experience, whether we had a commitment at all, whether, whether that was real or not as we live through life. At the beginning, at the beginning, when God first starts to speak to Hosea, that's, that's what he says to Hosea. And Hosea digests this word. He puts this word into practice. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, 
because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So we're, we're given the name of the first son, and there's a, there's a meaning to this name. So all the kids in this story, the names are significant, and the names have meaning. And this is one of the big issues, uh, the way in which Israel's disobeyed God. One of the big issues here are these kind of bloody battles and these bloody coups and this conspiracy conspiring with foreign nations because they feel this pressure coming from Assyria that will do wreak havoc. But it's, it's who they trust that is the problem. And, that, and all these violent coups and these schemes and these conspiracies with other nations, they're trusting in themselves and trying to make themselves in their own future. And they're not consulting the Savior who rescued them from Egypt, who is the reason that they have a life and have existence to begin with. And it's this problem, it's a key problem in the historical circumstances, if you want to know, you can read 2 Kings 9 and 10, that kind of spells out what Hosea is alluding to here. Because he's alluding to a particular time in history, but he also is saying more about God breaking the bow, breaking Israel's bow that, it, that has a particular historical context, but it also, part of why Hosea is able to be obedient is because Hosea sees the end. Hosea has an eschatological vision, which is just a fancy word for the end, the, our goal here, where all this is heading, you and I, in this community of faith, where God is leading us into a place where the kingdom finally comes and all the bows are broken, all the means by which we create conflict and wage war will eventually be broken. And the vision that is given Isaiah becomes a reality where the wolf lives with the lamb and the leopard lies down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, that's the vision. That's the vision that Hosea has, that he sees, that he's trying to help people understand that they got to put away these schemes. The, the, this isn't of God, what they're trying to do. And instead, they're being called to turn, to turn their sight back to God. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Now notice the difference in this child. Gender, of course, so son first, daughter is born, child number two. But Jezreel's born to Hosea. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Hosea's probably not the dad. Hosea's commanded to marry a promiscuous woman, and indeed he has. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo ruamah, which means not pitied or without mercy. 
for I will no longer show mercy to Israel that I should at all forgive them. And now here the NIV translates this. This is an important distinctive point that we're gonna clarify later. But, but all translations, King James, NRSV, most translations use the word mercy here where the NIV uses the word love. And I think it's important because it's not God's love that's, that's at stake here, that's coming in and out. But there's this, an important point we need to grasp about what God's saying here about his mercy. And that it's the mercy where, where it says love. Yet I will show mercy to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. I, the Lord their God, will save them. We're reminded here of the sovereignty and power of God. And it has become fashionable and customary to confuse and mix up our cooperation with God and what he's called us to do because he has, he's called us to be his primary agents in the world. He's, he's endowed us with his grace and power. He's loved us so much that he came for us to equip us to do great things. And that's the primary way in which he has chosen for his will to be done in the world. But God can do things without us. And, and we get in the habit of talking about as if our power and what we do is absolutely synonymous with God's power. And we mix up creation with the creator and what is made with the maker in our life and in our world. God who is closer than our very breath is not synonymous with our breath, but he is holy other. He is a God who is powerful. He is a God who is sovereign. He is a God who can act independent of us. Before all creation, I am. Before all creation, he is. I contributed nothing. You contributed nothing of, of, of his body coming up out of the grave. I didn't do anything to help assist in that. And yet God rose from the dead. We aren't responsible. Israel wasn't responsible for splitting the sea. They were stuck with an army at their back. But God makes a way where there is no way. And Israel's been mixing all this up. They've looked around and they've, they've just assumed that, that God's just in their schemes and in their plans and in their conspiring with other nations and that God's all wrapped up in the material world and in matter. I, the Lord, their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo Ruamah, Gomer had another son. Again, doesn't seem like it's to Hosea. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So each child born symbolically represents the deterioration of a nation. As each child is born, things are getting worse and worse. This cycle of violence, this cycle of unbelief is just growing and growing and growing out of control because they are 
clinging to themselves and their own vision and their own ideas and trying to control their lives and make a future for themselves instead of clinging towards their Savior who is the reason they are even alive. And I think that's a a word of warning for us as we think of ourselves beyond a church but as a nation and we think about the principles that, that are some of the principles this country was founded on that don't really derive from men but derive from our maker, derive from our creator. And the more and more we try to have our being and act in ways where we aren't clinging to the foundations that come from God, the more and more we can expect our culture and our society to deteriorate. And I'm sure we can, we can go on and on and on about ways in which we observe that in different instances. Hosea Marion Gomer was living a symbolic demonstration of God's heartbreak over Israel's love affair with, with violence and control and, and their love affair with foreign deities. They had this problem of wanting some tangible expression and they, they worshiped Baal, this Canaanite God who's supposedly responsible for the rain and agriculture. And they would make images of Baal and they, they mix up creation with the creator and, and they, they, they betrayed the first two commandments, which, which is you shall have no other God before me and don't make for yourself an idol or bow to idols. And th- those are the primary things that they were doing. And so we see the way in which Israel has done this. And in telling Hosea to marry Gomer, we see, we see this beautiful image of marriage and in the shocking demonstration of this, of what, of what Hosea is asked to do, we see how God intends marriage to be. We see how what marriage's role is supposed to be in our life, in our society, in our world, that it's this eternal and binding and everlasting commitment and covenant between a man and a woman to each other and before God to be holy, to love and trust God before everything else and the way in which we're supposed to love each other in the marital relationship is exclusive and binding and eternal in that way and is supposed to be a sign for God's great love for us we see in the shocking nature of this what God actually really does intend marriage to be, that this mysterious bond is formed. And God makes good on our part as our salvation history develops. And not only in this passage, we're talking about God's relationship with Israel, but then Jesus' relationship with the church, that the church is the bride of Christ. We see how God is faithful. And what about us? Because there's part of this passage that doesn't seem like good news. <laughs> this third name for the child, lo ami, this third name, it seems like the covenant's reversed. It seems like the covenant's nullified. Not my people, you're no kin of mine, not my people. And so I think it's important for us to see in the context of this passage, after, after Israel has been unfaithful, after this cycle has played itself out. We see the ultimate consequence of the end. Like God loves us too much to force us into fellowship. That he really does respect our decision. And we do have a responsibility. And that when our ultimate decision, and Israel's ultimate decision here is just spiraling beyond recognition, it's, it's out of control and it's spiraled to the point where their ultimate decision was no. <laughs> I'm gonna go my own way. And God's wrath in this isn't vengeful, isn't spiteful. God doesn't have a character where he longs for his people to suffer, but God so loved the world that he gave himself to us. 
that we would have every opportunity to be in fellowship with him. And God's ultimate, I think to understand God's wrath here, to understand this word of not my people is ultimately God's honoring the decision of Israel who have said no, a final no here. No. (laughs) And so God loves us too much to force us into fellowship and they get to live in the mess that they have made. This conspiracy has just led to utter disaster and they just get to live in the bed that they have made for themselves. But notice in the same place, God's character hasn't changed, God's promise hasn't changed, his word hasn't changed. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. It's a generation It's a generation that has lost, not a people. The promise still remains. The promise is still true. And that God's love never fades. God's love never wanes. But his divine mercy is lifted if we say no. He lets us have our way in the separation, in the isolation from him. The Lord said to me, Hosea will go on to later say in chapter three, verse one, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again though she is loved by another man and is is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I don't think we're in a grave, as grave of circumstance as Israel. I don't think this body and this church is, is to a place where this kind of symbolic demonstration is needed for us. But this is a cautionary word for us, right? Because this word promiscuous doesn't just mean someone who has short, casual, and fleeting sexual relationships with people. Promiscuous also means to treat and deal with something in a casual or careless manner in a casual or careless manner. And I think a word for us to consider is that have we been promiscuous with the promises of God? Have we taken advantage of God's love and his grace that is everlasting, that is, that is true, and we dance in and out of kind of doing our own thing and going our own way, and, and then we kind of play church on the side? That's the danger for us in this is to treat God's promises in a casual and a careless manner. Paul reminds us, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life, a new life we are given, a new life because we worship a living God, a God who is closer than our very breath, but not synonymous with our breath, a God who isn't synonymous with the universe, a God who doesn't just stand far off and make sure things are generally running. We worship a living God. Not a God of wood or stone, not a God in the machine who is virtual, but a living God has set you and I apart and given us life. He's made us new and his promise is everlasting and his promise is what we can stand on, the promise of salvation, the promise of his abiding presence. 
So church, may we continue to be a faithful bride, faithful to the end, so we don't see a generation lost, faithful to the end, so we don't need this kind of symbolic demonstration that Gomer represented for for the people of Israel, faithful to the end, so we don't need such a demonstration, faithful to the end, so God's divine mercy always rests on us. It's always with us. Will you please pray with me? Holy God, I thank you for the men and women in our lives who who speak the truth in love and love us where we are, for who we are, but love us too much to leave us alone and encourage us and help us move closer to your presence, move closer to your face. God, today, this week, revive our faith. Help us remember that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you have called us to do great things. And God, sometimes the answer to our prayers is is for us to go. You have called us to go. You've called us to do great things, scary things that we can't do on our own, but we trust we can do through you. And God, give us the shameless audacity to ask you to move mountains and believe that you will, that sometimes you will do big things for us. Because we've seen your power. We are evidence of it. God, we know you are good. And we thank you for loving us. We pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.